The Church of the Nazarene is a holy, universal, and apostolic church. And the Nazarene Manual describes what it means to be a church in Article of Faith number 11. Furthermore, the historical statement which is found in the front of the Nazarene Manual also instructs us on how the Church of the Nazarene is positioned in the history of Christianity. So, welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and here with me in Cord Purgatory, our lovely studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Anthony Alegria. And thank you for joining us today. Again, we want to throw this out there. Remember to be supporting our content. You can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, a lot of places you can download our content for free and take it with you. If you'd like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelagos. But also, remember to be supporting your local church. Remember to be faithful and involved in the fellowship there. So today we are going to be talking about Article of Faith number 11, the church. But before we get started with the actual Article of Faith, I want us to take a look at some of the sentences in the historical statement, which is found in the beginning of the Nazarene Manual. And Amanda, would you read for us the opening sentence from the historical statement? It reads as follows. The Church of the Nazarene confesses itself to be a branch of Christ, one holy, universal, and apostolic church embracing as its own the history of God's people recorded in the Old and New Testaments and God's people through the ages and all expressions of Christ's church. All right. So if you're not familiar with some of the church language, it turns into jargon, it gets confusing. There are three descriptors for what it means to be the church there that are really important for us to hash out and give some clarity on. Um, one of them, the word holy, is something we hear a lot in church language, but whenever we see it, and we see it being used as a descriptor for something like the church, um, Pastor Amanda, would you walk us through what does holy really mean? Um, basically, um, it means to be set apart for God's purpose. It's cleansed from um, sin. Uh, we, we see this a lot in, in uh, the Old Testament where things are made holy, um, whether it be the temple or the tabernacle or even instruments within uh, the temple or the tabernacle. And it's this idea that, that something mundane, whether it is a thing or a person or a place or a time, is then taken out of that mundaneness and made by God's presence uh, something quite special or holy. All right, so the church, if it's described as being holy, that means it's set apart for God and God's purposes, and it's no longer bent towards sin. It is something which is different from other things of the world. It doesn't have this perpetual bend towards sin where it's wrapped up in that. All right, so the next descriptor we get is one calling it a universal church. Now, this is an interesting word because this is a word which also has other entirely different pronunciations. It's actually the word Catholic with a capital C. A lot of times people think of that being a denomination, though I think the Catholics may <laughs> think that they are not a denomination. They just are. Um, the Catholic with a capital C refers to the Roman Catholicism, more of a denomination. But the word Catholic itself, lowercase c, it means universal. And then I'll talk to us a little bit about what universal means and why is it important to say this is a universal church. Right. And so especially when the Church of the Nazarene or any denomination states that they are part of the universal church or the church universal, depending on how you phrase that, um, it's basically they are placing themselves within the context of all those who confess to be believers. And so um, there are some denominations, really more of cults, that would kind of put themselves outside of that. They would say that they have something special or unique, some kind of hidden knowledge uh, that makes them uh, a part not a part, but apart from uh, the, the church universal. And also what is great within the statement is that it says the holy universal apostolic church, but then it goes on describing what exactly that means. And you look that the universal church expands uh, not only space geographically, but also time. That the church, that the people of God has found itself connected um, early on, 
Uh, you can even say it starts with Adam and Eve as God fellowships with them and, and calls them uh, to a purpose, to a work, to a job. And, and throughout Abraham and all his descendants. And then, of course, you find the birth of the church at Pentecost with Peter proclaiming uh, a message that, that Christ has come to save and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But basically, universal or Catholic with a lower C just means that the whole church, all of it. Um, and also, again, these are those who believe. And this is where we would kind of say a good rubric of what is a part of the universal church and what's not is do they confess the Apostles' Creed? Um, do they confess in uh, a triune God that Jesus has come being fully man and fully human to come and to save and that he alone is the means of salvation or reconciliation? So all those things are kind of outlined. And if everyone or if people believe all of that, then we would say they are part of the universal or Catholic church. Yeah. And it's not any of this crazy heretical stuff. You know, whenever people start getting into hidden knowledge, they say, well, Jesus, he's not really divine. He's only divine for a little while. Or, or they start to say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit, it's it's not really there. Whenever you start getting into to stuff, which is saying, you know, there's hidden knowledge and we have it and we're special. That's where you get into things which are outside of orthodoxy. But this last word, apostolic, this is also one which is an important word to understand. A lot of people, they will take something like disciple and apostle and kind of use them interchangeably. But the word apostle, again, it is precise. It is taking us back to the early church. And this is something which is very important. It is connecting us with all of Christian history, all the way back to those who walked as physical flesh and blood, not just having a walk which you're you're connected to to Christ as as we have now, but one where people actually lived and they walked, they saw all the events of Christ's ministry on earth, they saw the passion, the the resurrection, they saw these things firsthand. The apostles are something which is a very specific name. Whenever you see the language of the apostles, that usually refers to those who actually walked with Jesus on this earth. Though sometimes People treat the Apostle Paul a little bit differently, even though he does have the experience he has with Jesus. It's a little bit after everything with the passion and going to the cross and resurrecting. But usually the, the Apostle era is considered the first church. I know, Amanda, you were talking about the root of Apostle earlier. Mm -hmm. so, so the original uh, in the Greek language, it comes from the uh, language of being sent ones. And so we have disciples who are followers and then apostles become those who are sent. And um, we also, if we look into kind of the Latin, which would later a lot of scripture would be translated into, it's where we get the word missionary. Um, yeah. And so missionary and apostle share a very similar uh, or similar root words um, just out of different languages, but this or same meanings. But yeah, this is the idea that, that the disciples, and you see this in the book of Acts, and you can watch the the disciples of Christ, the original disciples. And we also have to remember that the disciples of Christ extended beyond the 12 that are named yeah. often in list in, in Matthew and in Luke. Um, but there were lots of people who followed and these would then become the apostles. So as they follow Christ, now they are being commissioned to go out and share right. the gospel. And yeah, Paul gets kind of thrown in there too. Um, and so those early fathers, and this is why also we have the New Testament books that we have in our canons because they had to be tied to an apostolic yep, father yep. Or, or mother, and they had to be tied to those original people who saw, who who, who touched, who, who heard um, Jesus. And so there, there's this, and again, so as we're connecting this with the Church of Nazarene, we are saying we are a part of that tradition. Right. Um, that we are connected to that. That Again, we do not come to this in the midst of a void, um, but that we have a legacy that has been handed down for thousands of years. And when they use the language apostle to connect with the early church, it wasn't doing anything to exclude people after. If you're a second, third generation of the church or you're those of us living about 2,000 years later, 
It was just saying that we have to put an end on things that will be allowed into Scripture. So it has to have an apostolic connection. But anyway, so that's what that statement's saying. It says it's holy, it's set apart, it's universal, meaning it spans through time. It spans through a lot of different places. And it is also apostolic. So it is connected through the long tradition. We're continuing on the same work of those who were there, who watched the events unfold. They, they Perhaps they were even young enough to remember a, rumors of a child being born. And this whole deal where this man, he's a rabbi, he gets taken to a cross, he dies and resurrects, that is the apostolic era. And that's really the first generations of the church. And we're connected to that. Which is important to note because a lot of people, especially in the Protestant world, kind of want to cut themselves <laughs> off. They say, well, we're kind of the book of Acts and then... The Reformation. Yeah, the Reformation. Nothing no, no. <laughs> yeah, nothing in between. It's where a lot of people are. But really, and even the Nazarene Manual is articulating this, we are connected to it all. Yeah. We, we are part of this wonderful reality of the church. All right. Well, let's actually get to another question. So I've actually had this one thrown to me before. I don't know if either of you have. But someone had asked one, to, one time if the Church of the Nazarene is a church that recognizes that it is a branch of the universal church, does that mean that if anyone is a believer, that they are automatically a member in the Church of the Nazarene? So you don't have to go through a membership process, just I confess Christ. You know, I've been going to a Baptist church. I've been going to a Episcopalian church my whole life. Am I automatically a member in the Church of the Nazarene if their statement in their, their manual is that they are part of the universal church? Mena, what would you say to that question? Well, and I think we'd have to talk a little bit about what it means to be a member. And a lot of different uh, Christian traditions and denominations have different ideas of what membership exactly is. Um, in the Church of the Nazarene, membership means that uh, more than just you're a regular attender, it's that you've gone through a class, that you understand the responsibilities. Often you, you are placed in the front of the church at some point on a Sunday morning usually, and you are asked certain questions like, are you a Christian? Do you confess and commit to participate in the life of the Church of the Nazarene as it is described through our articles of faith, our doctrine, and our, our covenant of Christian conduct? And you answer yes. And then the responsibilities and the, um, I guess, benefits of that is you get to do, you get to vote at your local church. You also may be sent as a member to the district or general assemblies. And so that kind of membership is, is very intentional and specific. Um, and I think also in this question, I kind of answered in the sense of like all dogs are mammals, but not all mammals are dogs. And so in the sense of uh, all Nazarenes should be Christian if we're doing our job right <laughs> as pastors, that should be the case. Um, but not all Christians are Nazarenes. And that leaves, again, room for that there are many parts, but one body. And so the Church of the Nazarene just confesses that it is uh, merely one part of the whole um, in that. Um, there are there are other denominations doing other things, and other people are therefore the members of those other expressions. Anthony, I was just going to joke about how I do hope that uh, all the other Christians are eligible, though. Yes, <laughs> certainly. And if you're not a member in the Church of the Nazarene, you're watching this. You know, feel free to come and join us. We'll we'll have a talk about that. But also. Um, Please continue to watch. We hope to have good Christian fellowship with even people who are outside of the Church of Nazarene. Um, but for those who are considering membership, and maybe you're watching this as someone who's thinking about becoming a member, um, we are here to talk about what it means to be a um, someone who ascribes to the to the Nazarene Church and one who understands the manual. So picking up with actually the stuff in the manual, <laughs> let's get to Article 11, Part 1. And we're going to actually break the article up. In the past, a lot of times we've read it as a solid block. 
This one, you can kind of read it sentence by sentence. It's not a very long article, but Pastor Amanda, would you start us off with this first sentence? All right. It says, we believe in the church, the community that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, the covenant people of God made new in Christ, the body of Christ called together by the Holy Spirit through the word. All right. So this sentence, it always gets me a little bit because it uses a lot of words that generally mean the same thing. And it uses them twice, almost as if they're a little different, like the body of Christ, that is the church. Whenever you hear people say the church or the body of Christ, those are things which you can kind of use interchangeably. They have a little different emphasis, but the body of Christ and the church, they are the same. And another one that is in there is the question of what do they mean by the word there (laughs) in the end? So let's take these in turn. Amanda, talk just a little bit about the church being the body of Christ. Okay. And so um, this is something a couple weeks ago. So last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. Two Sundays ago was the Ascension Sunday, and that is the celebration or remembrance of Christ ascending to heaven. And it is in this part where uh, Jesus kind of commissions his disciples who are becoming apostles that he's leaving, but they are now commanded to be his representation to the world. And so this takes on the life of the body of Christ. And we also talk about with Christ being resurrected, that he has a new body, that there's this body reacts differently than all other bodies um, do, that it was truly a bodily resurrection. It wasn't uh, an appearance. He wasn't a ghost that seemed to be alive, but really was alive, really was bodily resurrected. And yet this the way that I guess physics and whatever works is going to be different. And so in the sense that now the disciples are that kind of new resurrected um, representation of Christ to the world. And so they have this mission. And when the world looks around and says, where is Jesus? The answer is not necessarily up in heaven, although they do confess that he sits at the right hand of God, the father, uh, you know, making intercession for us, but that actually the body of Christ is found amongst those who proclaim um, the good news. And that's an important thing because a lot of times people ask, well, where is the church in the midst of suffering? Or where is God in the midst of suffering? Well, if you have a good understanding of that idea that the church is the body of Christ, well, wherever the church is, that is where you find the body of Christ, which also means there's a huge responsibility placed on the church to live up to that. You know, that's not a small descriptor to have for yourself. If you are the body of Christ, you have to live up to that. There's great expectations of that. And again, that doesn't mean that everyone has to be behind a pulpit. They have to be someone with a a great degree in theology or anything like that. But it does mean that we are called to live as faithful believers who are living in accordance with Christian orthodoxy. We're living as Christ called us to be. We're wanting to be sanctified. We're wanting to be made holy. We are living righteous lives and we are representing the gospel to the earth. All right. So the other piece of this sentence which gets me is their use of Jesus Christ as Lord and then later saying that we are called together by the Holy Spirit through the word. Because if you have a good understanding of Christian orthodoxy, the second person of the Holy Trinity, which is Christ Jesus, is also the word of God manifest. The word of God, again, if you go to the gospel of John, it's pretty clear on this. The word of God, which was there in the beginning, it's God speaks creation into existence. The word of God, it took on flesh. The Word was God and the Word is God. This is Christ Jesus. And we understand that there's a lot of confusing things about the Word. A lot of times people hear the Word and they think Scripture, but yet even by Scripture's own confession, the Word of God is older than any human language, so it, it cannot be limited to Scripture. Amanda, when you read this, what do you think the the authors and the writers are meaning when they say Word in this article? It's capital W Word. Right. Yeah, so it's something significant. And, and and that's, yeah. And I do wish, and, and maybe if someone is watching this that, that knows the answer to this question, please comment or, or send us an email or however 
uh, to communicate to us maybe if you know a little bit more about what was the mindset of those who were originally writing it. I, I would think very generically, because um, we are a good Protestant denomination, uh, it, it probably has something to do with scripture as defined as the 66 canonical uh, books in the Bible. However, I wonder if, and I'm not sure if they mean Jesus, although that definitely theologically would fit this description. Yep. I wonder if they're going even more general than that. Um, Jesus obviously is the ultimate revelation of who God is, and our scripture, our Bible, is is, is kind of a, a good foundational revelation that we use a lot to, to compare everything else up to. Um, but just word as revelation, that, that we are called together by the Holy Spirit through this this interaction uh, with God, and so that may be a much more personal translation of that yeah, that yeah. that paragraph. But that's how I kind of understood it. Anthony, um, there's one detail here which leads me to lean towards the idea that this is uh, the word either as a reference to divine revelation or to scripture, because it says the body of Christ called together by the Holy Spirit through the word and to me that sentence would make a lot less sense if it said that it was the body of christ called together by the holy spirit through christ i don't know that's just a lot of well, well they're yeah. super redundant in the sentence anyway so it yeah. almost like i don't know if yeah they're tricking us or tricking yeah themselves. I, I can't <laughs> tell either it's one of those things and again we we're again we're not the end all things we're just having a conversation about the articles yes. of faith they're a lot of fun um but nonetheless the main takeaway from this is that god has revealed himself to us in three persons, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, it comes to bring us together. Again, Amanda mentioned Pentecost earlier. Pentecost is a great thing. The Holy Spirit, it comes to convict us, to mold us, and to live and reside with us. And that's a very important thing. And the church recognizes that we are the body of Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit with us. We have Christ in our presence. We are doing good things in the name of Jesus. Should be. Anyways, <laughs> you find some some corrupt things. And, and when that happens, we got to root it out. But... The general call of the church is holy because God is holy and his church is also holy. All right, let's get into the second sentence, part two. Pastor Amanda, would you read that for us? Right. It says, God calls the church to express its life in the unity and fellowship of the Spirit, in worship through the preaching of the word, observance of the sacraments, and ministry in his name, by obedience to Christ, holy living, and mutual accountability. All right, the question I have for this sentence, when it talks about fellowship, one of the things which is very unique about the church and one of the great questions that a lot of young ministers are posed with, is there salvation without the church? There are a lot of people who are posed with the question, can you have fellowship without the church? And I'm just going to throw this to everyone <laughs> in our room and let them answer. Um, thanks be to God, two of us are ordained, so, <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but one of us is not. So, Anthony, if you, you answer this wrong, it's out of here with you. Not only are we going to break you up. I don't know if you guys have haven't noticed to the or pipe. have noticed, but whenever we talk about the Articles of Faith, most of the time I'm just... <laughs> Step back. Yeah. Let you guys do the work. Yeah. Um, well, yes. eventually, usually sometime in February, you will have to speak up. <laughs> you will have to speak up, and it is coming, coming soon. Okay. So, Pastor Manet, what do you think? Is there salvation without the church, and can you have Christian fellowship without the church, or does all the language just get redundant and turn into a big mess? Uh, yes. Um, I think there's no simple answer. I, like, I, th I think answering simply yes or no can often lead you down some, some very troubling roads um, to this question, so I will not answer so simply, but I will try to keep it succinct. Um, we believe that uh, God has revealed God's self in many ways. Uh, we, Like I mentioned before, we do specifically look at Scripture. Uh, we also see God revealing through reason, through tradition, through the church itself. Um, and we also say that, that confess that there's natural revelation that 
through experiencing the world God has created, you can get to know who God is. Um, and you may never know the word God or Yahweh or even Jesus, but that you can still have this relationship with God. And so in that sense, yes, there can be salvation outside of the church. But then as much as I say that, if the confession of the church is that the church itself is the body of Christ, and that consists of all those who confess who Christ is, then even those who do not know the name or the word Christ, if they believe in him, are a part of the church and therefore have experienced salvation through Christ and are a part of the church, even if they never know what that word is. And so, again, <laughs> those were a lot of words. There are a lot of words. Um, but it basically is saying the church itself as a human entity cannot save. I mean, we confess that even as ministers, a part of a denomination, the church does not save. God alone saves and God can do whatever God wants to do with that. Um, God alone can can make those um, saving and condemning uh, judgments. But we as members of the body of Christ get to do something quite spectacular in sharing in that ministry and in that mission. Um, and so what is Christian fellowship? It is important. It is vital. And, and as much as I say all that that I said earlier, that does not mean we get the excuse of, well, you know, I don't, I'm not saved through the church, therefore I don't have to be a part of the church. No, that's the com- one of Jesus's commandments. or the, He said the greatest commandment is to love God. The second is to love others. And you cannot love others if you are not a part of the fellowship. And that really is where a lot of times people who will say, yes, there's salvation without the church. A lot of times that is a crutch to say, well, I don't need to be a part of the church or I can start my, my own group. And, and then they start saying, well, the old Testament isn't real. And there's the demiurge and then it gets downhill really quickly. Um, but one of the things we certainly know is that, well, and this is not quite a debate, but a little bit, um, we're going to have fun with this. God is a God who has, he can do as God pleases, but God has chosen to reveal in certain ways. And the church is one of the places that has revealed salvation. If we look around us, um, right now this conversation is a product of, of ministers in the church. We look at scripture. Would we have scripture if it wasn't for faithful people preserving it? You know, a lot of things have happened throughout history and there's been people go through some difficult things to preserve it. A lot of good work has been done to hand down the faith. And a lot of people, they know God because a family member or a close friend took them as a child to to the church. And the church has always been instrumental in bringing people in. But now, because Anthony does got to be put on the spot for this one, he's going to have to answer this to a district board at some point in time. And he's going to have to answer it to everyone out there in the audience. So you all out there, you can feel like you're on the the committee and maybe (laughs) put in your, your comments and things. You can direct it at me. You don't have to get too hard on Anthony. Anthony. What are your thoughts? Can you have Christian fellowship outside of the church? Is salvation something in the church or outside? Okay, all right. Well, I was preparing myself to answer the question, what exactly is Christian fellowship? But all right, we'll answer those instead. So can you have salvation without the church? Is that one of them? Well, you see, where you messed up is if your your design was to say, I'm just going to answer what is Christian fellowship. You should have just done that. No one would have even questioned it. You just answer the question you wanted to have asked is what you're supposed to do. But proceed as you see fit. Okay, well, in any case, uh, I would say that that question misunderstands what the church is, to ask if you can have salvation without the church. Because the church is the, not necessarily natural, more holy, but sort of in a different sense. But it is the natural consequence of multiple people being saved if there are multiple people who are saved then there will be the church if there's one person who's saved then perhaps 
maybe you won't be maybe uh there won't be the church because you know that's just one person Mm -hmm. but um if there are multiple people who are saved then the church is what what follows what Anthony started off saying, but like this question misunderstands. One of the like biggest professors at Trevecca, one of the, um, oh, I probably shouldn't describe it like that. You're going to really get all of us in trouble. But one of the, the hardcore professors at, at Trevecca, which is the university where Anthony attends, is always coming in and grilling students. Is there salvation without the church? And kind of finishes them off. Many, many leave that question crying. Um, it's kind of a weeder to get people out of class. Um, anyways, we got to move on. Um, Audience out there, you can do with Anthony's answer as you please, and ours as well. Send us your thoughts, questions, and comments. We're always looking forward to those. All right, part three of this, the mission of the church. Pastor Amanda, read us through this next sentence. Yes, the mission of the church in the world is to share in the redemptive and reconciling ministry of Christ and the power of the Spirit. The church fulfills its mission by making disciples through evangelism, education, showing compassion, working for justice, and bearing witness to the kingdom of God. Now, I've got to say, I really like this sentence, um, and I'm, I was debating whether or not to say this on air or not. I actually like all of this article, but I feel like the historical statement does a lot better at nailing down an article of faith on what it means to be the church because there's so much room for interpretation when it comes to the actual article, where when you get to the historical statement, it's kind of, you, it is what it is. You can't really have a lot of wiggle room there. A lot of these words that are used in what Amanda just read People will take them a lot of different ways. So let's open up by just clarifying some of this language. I know we talked earlier about what an apostle is, but what is a disciple, Pastor Amanda? Well, and I think I'm going to slightly take on a tangent. I, I enjoy the language of the church fulfills its mission by making disciples. And this is both really interesting one, because again, we confess that only Christ alone can save. But, and then that sentence before that we have to share in the redemptive and reconciling ministry of Christ. And there's this wonderful picture that is being painted that although God is all powerful and almighty and all knowing, that God does not leave all of that to God's self, but invites people to participate. And somehow we have the responsibility and maybe even the audacity uh, to make disciples. <laughs> and um, so that one, it's just really interesting. And I quite enjoy that phrasing of it. And also our, um, the Church of Nazarene's, mo- no, mission statement, not motto, mission statement is to make Christ-like disciples in the nation. So then what is a disciple? And as I mentioned earlier, when we we're talking about the word apostle, disciple is a follower. You can have disciples of all kinds of religions and philosophical ideas and Um, Even in Jesus's time, John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. So everybody was following something. Um, And so what it means for the church to make disciples is then to cultivate people who can grow in their understanding and in their mission, in their work uh, of the the people of God and the, the body of Christ. And a disciple usually is going to get to a place where they're able to take on the roles, and it may be different, of whoever it was that you were learning under that you're going to to come like for those in the church, they do not all become Christ Jesus, but many of them, they start taking on his ministry. They take it to different places. They may have a different geography that they work in. Maybe they don't go to every angle of the earth, but maybe one goes to one corner, another goes to another corner, and they're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. They're taking the full gospel with them to different areas, and they are sharing in the great work. And that really is what makes the body of Christ the body of Christ. There's many members. We go to a lot of places, but we should be coherent with one another. should be some consensus on who we are. And speaking of coherency, um, let's talk about some of these other words. Uh, We get a lot of words like redemption, reconciling, evangelism, compassion. All of these words can mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. And just 
about anybody you might ask them to, they would feel like super morally certain about what they would say. They'd say, oh, I know this is what compassion means. I know this is what evangelism means. But let's go through some of these just a little bit. So when we hear redemptive and reconciling ministry, someone in here, Anthony Amandal, let either of y'all respond to this, whoever wants to. What do you really think when you hear redemptive and reconciling? I guess I'll give my take first. Um, Well, I would say redemptive as in sort of in regards to forgiveness for sins. You are being redeemed for the debt of sin that has been created by sin. And then reconciling is not only, you know, forgiveness, but then you're going a step further into sanctification. You're being lifted up into Christ-likeness. That would be my take on it. And, and yeah, for those who have been following some of our stuff lately, we've been talking about Noah. We find that there is this soreness that comes into God's heart. He's sorrowful. He, he feels such great agony when he sees that the whole world has got corrupted, and he wants to redeem all of creation. That's one of the themes that we've talked about in Noah. And you find it throughout Scripture. God wants redemption for, for the whole world. And with humanity, this thing which is created to be the image of God, when it got corrupt, it really wasn't able to live and do the things which God had intended for it. It had fallen short. and It had kind of lost the, the special consecration that it was intended for. Well, with redemption and the redemptive and reconciling ministry, that is not only a work of Christ, but the church by extension should be pulling people towards this, It is an act where we say we want people to be holy. We want them to once again be able to be set apart. We want people to be freed from sin. We want people to have good relationships with their neighbors, with their family, with their loved ones, their parents, their children, their brothers, their sisters. We want people to have good relationships with other people, but also we want people to have a good relationship with God. We want people to have that relationship fixed, and we want to see something be done. And only God is truly able to do this, but as the church, we are ministers, and we are to preach people the gospel and lead them in this direction. Pastor Amanda, this next word, evangelism. (laughs) What does evangelism really mean? It's one of those words where people kind of take it at liberty. Yes, and and we can see expressions of evangelism in various different ways. Um, I know kind of an old church i would almost say an old camp meaning way of, of thinking of evangelism is like you pass out the tracks the little pieces of paper and and then other people evangelism is getting people to church and it's like if you don't get them to that church at i, I don't know what time your service starts but like at our church it's ten forty-five. so you you know if you're really doing evangelism you have somebody at church on sunday morning at ten forty-five a.m um and and other people evangelism is kind of a lifestyle Um, And then there's just a hundred different versions of evangelism that people really, not even versions of evangelism, I would say versions of an expression of of evangelism. So we really have to get then to the root of what evangelism is. And I think simply it is sharing the gospel, the good news. It is, it is proclaiming it. And I think whether it is uh, explicitly versus like, you know, looking at someone and saying, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or if it's implicitly with just living your life the way God has called you to live your life and that draws other people to come and ask you questions, regardless of explicit or implicit, it has to be intentional. Evangelism does not happen just because. Um, It's not really kind of woven in to the the pattern of our world because our world has been corrupted and broken. And so evangelism has to be intentional. Whatever expression, whatever face, whatever paint you want to put on it, as long as it doesn't contradict scripture, fine, whatever, do what you'd want to do. Um, 
But if it has to be about proclaiming and intentionally proclaiming the message of who God is and how God is reconciling and redeeming the world. Yeah, and evangelism, it comes from euangelion, actually has the word angel there in the middle. And not just because the English spelling has that in there, but the idea of a messenger. <laughs> you are taking the message, the good news, you are taking it to someone. And the word angel means messenger in, in Greek. Um, but we're not here to discuss too much Greek. Though we've been there a little bit today. That's yeah. kind of fun. All right, so let's get to a, another word, and that is compassion. Mm-hmm. And this is another one, and even the word justice itself. A lot of these, they take on different meanings and different things. And with compassion and things of that nature, you can't ever take them at the expense of others. You can't say we're doing compassion and cut off from evangelism, or you can't say we're going to hand people off to a track and kind of cut that away from discipleship. All of these things, they are different things that you may emphasize differently at different times. There's a time where you may need to get somebody to that moment for their confession. There's a time where you may not be allowed to publicly confess things, but people are really in tune with your behavior and you can reveal the the work of the church that way. There are different times and different contexts, but whenever you start purchasing one at the expense of others, that's where some hairy things come in. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to really all of these, you really have to to know their their place. But when it comes to compassion, um, this is another one which it actually takes really a lot of mature people of faith to handle compassion. Uh, Amanda or Anthony, would one of y'all give me a quick overview of what does compassion Injustice. What is what does it actually look like to be a compassionate ministry leader in the the church? Right, and I, I think okay. So this kind of gets interesting because we do have in in our denomination, uh, we like acronyms. So we have NYI and N- NMI and SDMI, and so we segment out the youth, which is weird that they get their own thing. But anyways, um, in our missions <laughs> and then our discipleship. Um, And then we have Compassionate Ministries, which is odd. We just call that Compassionate Ministries. No one calls it CM. But anyways. um, CMI, Compassionate Ministries Ministries International. It also sounds like a a TV show, like like CMI. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Um, uh, But anyways, so, so again, these are segmented for really bureaucratic reasons to help organize and give ourselves some structure to work within. But they are never meant to segment us in the sense of separate us. Like, oh, well, you do missions, but you do discipleship. And you and like, that's all you can do is you, you fit within this little box and that's it. And often we treat compassionate ministries like that. It's like, okay, on Saturday, we're going to, um, well, this is something our church is going to do in a couple Saturdays. We're going to go clean out or we're going to go around our community and we're going to pick up trash. And that is a ministry that's organized by our compassionate ministries leader. And that's fine. But if we ever think that, oh, that's it. I cleaned up the trash on one Saturday. I've done compassionate ministries. We're done. Or, I'm, you know, I've fulfilled my mission as a member of the church. I'm good. Um, again, we, we, we've too segmented that out to not realize its connection to the broader um work and picture of the church and so compassionate ministries most of the time it really it's focused on on working with the disenfranchised with the poor um with those who maybe need extra help that that cannot get them through other means or really um i think the church should be the main means of producing compassionate ministries or helping those but anyways that's a different tangent um however even in that compassion and compassionate ministries it is should be the life of the church and it is connected to all that the church does, that um, even in something as offering the sacraments, which is, or our, we have two, baptism and, and uh, Holy Communion, but even in something in offering Holy Communion to others can be an act of compassion. 
And, and so, again, it can be very broad, it can be very specific, but overall, compassionate ministries or compassion, showing compassion, should be the work of all believers and not those who are just involved in a specific ministry or acronym. All right, maybe I can keep from beating the microphone around. <laughs> um, anyways, so one last part of this we're going to read. We're going to wrap up the article now, and then we'll have a fun question. I'm going to throw something about Adam and Eve in there since we've been talking about Genesis, but let's wrap this up. Um, <laughs> article 11, part four, this last bit. Amanda, would you read it for us? All right, it says, The church is a historical reality that organizes itself in culturally conditioned forms. It exists both as local congregations and as the universal body, and also sets apart persons called of God for specific ministries. God calls the church to live under his rule in anticipation of the consummation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, simple question. Who is the head of the Nazarene church? The Lord. <laughs> the Lord. We're not doing a commentary on, on, on Noah, so we don't put the Lord. Um, that was actually in a commentary. We had a picture of that in our last one. Like, the Lord was actually in there. Because oh, We are we, being serious. We need to hold ourselves back from any hidden jokes. Yes, we do. Christ Jesus. Well, it's public online. Christ Inside Jesus is jokes, the head of the bad. church. Yeah. Uh, and we have to clarify this because there are a lot of times people look at things. You know, there was a whole incident. It was a year, maybe two years ago. We covered it where there was a, a minister in Canada who said there is no Trinity, rejected, explicitly rejected Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when they were talking about this, the, the head of the church, which was introduced at the head of the church, said, well, they can stay in the church. And it was quite evident that Christ Jesus was not the head of the church. Yes, we do have general superintendents in the Church of the Nazarene, but they are not actually the head of the church. Christ Jesus is to be. Um, and that's where we're going to end that. <laughs> All right. So before we get to our final thoughts and comments, I do have one thing I want to pose to us, which we can kind of do as a final thought and comments. This is unrelated to Article 11, but it's one that kind of Amanda hinted. That's a really fun question I think a lot of people have thought of. All right. Amanda was talking about how you can tie us all the way back to Adam and Eve. This is a fun question we can deliberate. When we all get to heaven, to, <laughs> to quote the hymn. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. <laughs> will we see Adam and Eve? All right, so that, that's a really tricky one because, again, this is one that I've, I've always thought. All right, where will Adam and Eve be in that? I'm not saying we have to adjudicate. We're not here to judge. <laughs> we're not the final redeemer. But just for a fun picking of the imagination, do people expect that, yes or no? Or any response at all? Am I the only one who thinks of this? Surely not. No. Um, I think when, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, we will enjoy fellowship with all those who have gone before us. That's a good answer. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really give us much things, but it's the correct answer. Those who have gone before us, who whose name is recorded, um, those will be good. Anthony, what do you think? Uh, I think I'm going to have to piggyback on Amanda here and just say, you know, those who have been considered the people of God, and uh, who were held righteously in his sight, those we will see in heaven, and they will be very few. <laughs> oh, Anthony says they'll be very few. Anthony takes this even further than I was going to. I kind of felt bad for, like, asking this. It's a fun question. People do ask this. No, it uh, is. And it's, it's like a serious one. With, with a lot of the Old Testament figures, some people kind of lump all Old Testament stuff in this, like, well, they were before Christ. But oh, then, yes, in that context. In that context. Yeah. But then when you get to, like, Adam and Eve, where it's kind of unclear— it's like, yeah, they, they messed up God. He sends them out of the garden. There's all this stuff that happens. But where do they really line up after that? Is there any redeeming qualities? When uh, it comes to saying, uh, Frank, possibly harsh things that are true, which we do know they will be few. Uh, the scripture is full of that. Uh, Christ told us many, many times there will be few. Um, yeah, I'm. it is both 
my superpower and my greatest weakness. It is like my super strength and my kryptonite. Well, <laughs> and I think especially to the conversation of Adam and Eve, um, I enjoy that there's an imagery that I, I saw recently, and it's not recent, it's it's quite an old imagery, but of, of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, talking to Eve. And there's this idea, and then also we hear in the crucifixion story, or, or really afterwards, where Jesus descends into the abode of the dead and proclaims the good news to those held captive there, um, that Christ's actions on the cross was not contained uh, to Jerusalem in the first century, but reverberates throughout all of time and space, not only to the future, to us today, but also to the past. And so, so I think in that sense, in that context, um, I think, although, yes, there may be few, we, we may be surprised who the few are. We may be surprised. Yeah, I think that's one of the things which is just certain. No, I, yeah, I definitely Though, I will that. also add this. Like, we've been saying a lot of things on here which turn into, like, ancient alien hair. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I certainly don't have nice enough hair to do that. Maybe Anthony does. We need to get the brush and just whip him up into that and just let him spill the crazy conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you've got to have crazy hair to do conspiracy theories well. Um, well, I'll just wake up one morning and show up here without doing my and hair. Then and you, oh, we can it. we can bring back Professor Resurrecto yes, Mancer okay. to answer all these questions. Um, that will be a lot of fun. Anyways, we hope you enjoyed our program today. We hope that you walked away with this with something, well, hopefully informative on Article 11, the Holy Universal and Apostolic Church. With that, God love you and have a blessed day.